So Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 1 to 25. These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you, to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and that you may enjoy, uh, enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulation, decrees and laws the Lord God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful and obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Elspeth. Uh, a few weeks ago, the Optus mobile network crashed. Uh, like me, you might have had no phone reception or internet access for most of the day. Uh, perhaps I should have learnt my lesson because Optus had a big data breach about 12 months ago as well. And so when a second thing like this happens, fingers start getting pointed, the CEO resigns, and I noticed this week some comments about the culture at Optus. When we start to see a pattern of behaviour, we quickly start talking about institutional culture. 
not just one or two rogue operators or incompetent people, but it's a whole culture of a place that can make even good people make bad or, or even evil decisions. So we start to blame the leaders who, who presumably set the culture. Now, sometimes people talk about a positive culture that drives success and honesty and accountability, but more often we hear about a toxic culture or maybe a, a laissez-faire culture with, with no accountability. It's not just companies. The institutional church in Australia continues to grapple with a major culture issue. The Royal Commission showed how badly we failed as churches to respond appropriately to accusations of abuse. We have a lot to apologise for, a lot to make right. And even though I'm, I'm confident that we now have a much healthier culture as a church around child safety now, uh, it will understandably take a long time to win back the trust of many. And that's because there's this tragic gulf between our stated values that we follow the God of love and compassion and, and the reality of how we and particularly our leaders treated the most vulnerable members of our community. Today's passage in Deuteronomy has a big focus on making sure that God's people actually reflect his character. So that when we claim to love God, it's not just skin deep. It's not just a cover up to look good, but it actually permeates every aspect of who we are, both individually, but, but also corporately and collectively at that cultural level. Tonight's our last week in Deuteronomy, like Ali said. If you've been here through the rest of the series and you are listening as Elspeth read, I wonder if you are playing the Deuteronomy edition of Bible Bingo. Did you notice some of our favorite phrases from Deuteronomy come up again and again in our passage? The Lord who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. We've heard that before and again tonight. Tick. Commands, decrees and laws. Tick. The good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. We had that. Fear the Lord your God. Tick. Be careful to obey him. Tick. So that it may go well with you and your children. But it's more than just bingo fun. As we notice these repeated phrases, they actually start to show us the major themes of this book. It's all about who God is and what he's done and what he's promising. The, the new land he's giving to the people of Israel and, and his command for them to follow in this new land. And when you put all that together, who God is, what he's done in the past, what he's promising and giving for the future. All together, they make up a covenant like an agreement that is going to govern the relationship between the Lord God and his people, Israel. Uh, it's a bit like a marriage covenant where both sides make a commitment to love each other. Both parties have obligations and the covenant protects the relationship and enables it to flourish by ensuring that both sides are committed and have the same expectations. Well, that's similar to what's happening here and just like at a wedding, we get the backstory of how the happy couple got together. Except in this case, it's a bit unusual. Because God rescued Israel out of what we can only describe as a toxic relationship with the Pharaoh of Egypt. It was literally enslaving them. 
God rescues them with his great power. He begins to fulfill the promise he'd made to their ancestors to bless them and give them this rich and abundant land. And now the people are on the verge of entering in and enjoying that land. And just before they do, God, through Moses, spells out his covenant with them. Uh, We talked about Moses interceding last week. And here at the heart of it is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. If you want to sum up Israel's responsibilities under the covenant, here it is. And like Ali mentioned at the start, this remains a massively significant verse for observant Jews today. They recite it twice a day. Some will wear it written in in little boxes, these tefillim, like Ali spoke about, on their foreheads, on their arms. Uh, And it's talked about that in verse 8. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this verse in particular has shaped and permeated Jewish culture. It's had a profound impact on Christianity as well. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that if you want to understand monotheistic religion in the world today, Judaism, Christianity, and, and even, I think, Islam, given how it's historically connected to those other two, if you want to understand monotheistic religion today, then this is a foundational text, these verses. So let's take a little bit of, un- of time to unpack what it all means And I'm going to do this in a bit of detail for these two verses in particular. So so here it is again from uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Uh, Moses says, hear. Uh, Which as any student knows, when the teacher says, listen up, everyone... They're not just saying, listen to the words I'm saying. They're saying, do what I'm saying. Put it into practice. Don't just ignore it. And so when God says, hear, well, we want to listen up. It's a good idea to follow what he says. Here's what he says. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's so much in this short sentence. It's four words in, in the original Hebrew. Uh, Firstly, we get the name, the Lord. Uh, It hasn't come out on the slide, but if you've got a print Bible, you'll see that Lord is all in capitals there, right? And whenever you see that Lord in all in capitals there, it means that the word being translated is not just the everyday name for any old Lord. It's not just a title of respect for God. It's actually God's name. It's sometimes said Yahweh. It's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This name distinguishes God, the the God of Abraham, the God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, distinguishes him from uh, other gods, such as those worshipped in Egypt, for example, like Isis or Osiris or, or gods worshipped elsewhere. And the meaning of the name Yahweh is something like, I am who I am. God defines himself. He's not defined by someone or something else. He is who he is. God says, I am. That's who I am. He's incomparable. 
God has a name like other gods, but that's where the similarities end. He's not Yahweh, the God just of this land or of that land. He's Yahweh, I am. He's not Athena, the daughter of Zeus, or Thor, the son of Odin. He's Yahweh, I am. He's not one God among many, but he is God alone. And as Moses says, Yahweh is our God. He's Israel's God. Not because he isn't the God of the rest of the, rest of the world too, he is. And not just because Israel worships him. Like we would say that Jupiter is a God of the Romans because the Romans worship Jupiter, right? That's what we mean. But more than that, Yahweh is the God of Israel here, the claim is, because he rescued them out of slavery. Without Yahweh, there would be no people of Israel. They are his people as much as he is their God. So the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is, is one. This Yahweh is not many gods. There are not many forms of Yahweh, not many different idols or faces. He's not divided or in conflict. He's not, uh, he, he's not kind of at war with himself, but he's united. He has integrity and unity of purpose. It's good for us to remember this as Christians. In the New Testament, we see that God's oneness is not kind of simplistic. It's, it's also complex. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this verse reminds us that fundamentally, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, which Jesus affirms. They're not identical with each other, but absolutely united. And so we can't play the Son off against the Father or think that the Spirit has some different agenda for us compared to the Father and the Son. God is one. But also not just one amongst many, but the one true God. He's unique amongst all the deities that might be worshipped on the earth. It says, He is the one true God. The Lord is one. That's the claim. This is the heart of the Jewish confession. It's the heart of monotheistic faith generally. Not that we worship only one God amongst lots, but that there is only one God worthy of the name. This sounds exclusive. This is intolerant, right, in our modern world. Who are we to say that there's only one true God? That, that we're right about who God is. That's, that's human arrogance. But isn't it also human arrogance to say that, well, because humans worship lots of different gods, therefore there must be lots of different gods? We're still preferencing human knowledge. We're still saying that humans are the expert and the barometer on the divine. If there is only one true God, would we be willing to listen when that God speaks and tells us so? Because this verse was just as revolutionary in its ancient context as well. If Yahweh alone is the true God, then there is only one God worth worshipping, no matter who you are or where you are. 
He's not a Western God or a Middle Eastern God. He's not a white man's God or a black woman's God. He is the God of all. The only one we should treat as God. And it's the only reason that verse 5 makes sense, actually. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love God with everything. This only makes sense if there's one God. If there are lots of gods, then you should probably give them all a bit of respect. But if there's only one God, you don't need to divide your loyalties. There's no need to hold back part of your adoration for a different God. No no need to keep back part of your devotion just in case. If there's only one God, you can go all in. In fact, if there's only one God, you should go all in. Why would you love something else that isn't God more than God? False worship, actually, to give anything less than all you are to the one true God. And here's why that's a problem. Because if there is only one true God who alone created us and gives us life, who provides us with all the good things we depend on, like oxygen and water and food and friends and family and shelter and work and purpose and meaning in life, if these all ultimately come from one source then to love this God with anything less than all our heart is the greatest disrespect. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Let's think about heart, soul, and strength. Um, we need to do a little bit of translating here. In English, we think the heart, well, that's where my emotions come from, right? I'm grieved to the heart. And then our brain is where our mind is and and maybe our guts is where courage lives. In Hebrew, they thought a bit differently. Uh, For them, uh, the heart is more than just the emotions. It's also the the seat of your reason. It's your decision-making. That comes from the heart as well. So, So love the Lord with all your heart means think and dwell on the Lord. Make decisions out of love for Him. Grow in your affection for Him. And then love him with all your soul. That's the, the inward person, your, your essence, the, the real you, your identity, we might say. Don't just love God on the surface, outwardly. And, and don't love yourself. Don't love your own identity. No, love the Lord your God with all your soul, with, with all the real you. And with all your strength. Your body is just as much part of you with your capacities, with your gifts, with your talents, with the things you can do with your labor and work and activity and influence. Love the Lord your God with everything. If there is one God from whom all things come, to whom we owe all existence, then it makes sense to love him with all that we are. And yet, how many of us actually do this? It goes totally against the 
institutional culture of our society. How often are we encouraged to love ourselves first, to live for ourselves, to treat ourselves almost like God. You are unique, the world tells us. You are your own creator, so love yourself with all your heart and soul and strength. Now, now I'm not saying we should hate ourselves, far from it. But we are not God. It's a mistake to treat ourselves like we are. And the risks that threatened Israel's love for God are, I think, the same threats we face today. The illusion of self-sufficiency, the illusion of false gods, and the temptation to test God. Firstly, the illusion of self-sufficiency. It's in verse 10 to 12. Moses starts to talk about when life is good. When you're enjoying the good land that God is giving you, the cities and wells and vineyards that you didn't dig and, and make and plant, when you're enjoying them, don't forget who gave them to you. Because good things in life make us feel self-sufficient. I earned this promotion. I deserve this good relationship. I worked hard for this house. And we don't always recognize just how much others have contributed to to the things that we enjoy others built this house others built this society others created the businesses and technology that underpins so much of the life we we assume and behind all that work of humans will we recognize the god who gives these good gifts or will we become so enamored with the gift with the the holiday, the relationship, the house, the job, that, that we forget the one who gives it to us. Another danger is the illusion of the gods of other people. In verse 14, Moses says to the Israelites, do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. I wonder if you've stopped to think about what or who the people around you worship. And if you can't recognize those things, how will you know if you're worshipping those things too? Here are a few questions that are good to ask to diagnose what you might be loving in place of God. What do you daydream about? What do you have nightmares about? What makes life worth living to you? Who is the person whose approval you most want? As we begin to recognize these deep motivations and fears, we start to see what we might be loving in place of God. You could think about your prayers for a moment. Are you ever tempted to pray, God, if only you'd give me this Fill the blank. Or do you make deals with God? God, if you deliver this for me, then I'll do that for you. But when we pray like this, it actually shows that there's something that we love more than God. 
We want the thing we're praying for more than we want God. That, that's what an idol is, something that we love more than God. Now, when this happens between two friends, we quickly recognize it. If our friend wants to use us to get something rather than actually wanting a friendship with us, well, we start to clue onto that and it's probably time to get out. God's the same. When we test him, when we make demands of him, he won't accept it. He won't be used. That's not how you build a genuine relationship. So with all this in mind, is it really possible to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength? Because I don't. excuse me I suspect you don't and Israel surely didn't there's only one person I reckon who can claim to love God with everything no one could fault Jesus's love for God he was utterly devoted to God but the tragedy was that he didn't get to enjoy what God promises here. He didn't get to enjoy long life in the land. He didn't get to see his children and grandchildren prosper. He loved God with everything and the institutional culture of his day crucified him for it. He showed what it looks like for a human to love God with everything. But it comes at an awful cost cost him his life but by giving his life he also proved something else when the son of god willingly chose death he proved to us not only that a human can love god with everything he proved that god loves us with everything he showed the price that god is willing to pay even for ungracious unloving people like you and me because on the cross two things are happening jesus goes to the cross out of utter devotion to his heavenly father and he goes to the cross out of utter devotion to you and me he gives his life in obedience to the father's will and for the purpose of reconciling you and me to himself where we have fallen so far short in our love for God, God pours out more and more love to win us back. God had prophesied this long before. Israel's lack of love starts to come back to bite them. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah about 500 years before Jesus. He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that Moses was talking about. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. And a verse or two later, he says, I will forgive their wickedness, will remember their sins no more. The Lord promises this and Jesus fulfills this promise. He makes a new covenant with us. He enables a new relationship with God. And he pours out his spirit, God's very presence to live in us, to write God's law of love on our hearts so that God's love will seep deep into who we are, not, not just the surface level. So as we finish up, how, how do we at St. Jude's in Parkville make sure that love for God is deeply embedded in our culture, that it shapes everything we do? not just as individuals, but, but corporately, together. Our passage has a few hints. Uh, they say, it, uh, if you're in leadership, to communicate, communicate, communicate. And if you're getting sick of saying it, then maybe you've almost said it enough for the message to get through. And we see that in verse 6 to 9. Make sure that the message is everywhere. Uh, verse 6 says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. How do we impress love for God on our hearts? We embed it in our culture, in the things we do, every aspect of the day, through our minds, through our bodies. We make it a priority in private and in public. When you're at home, it talks about here, and when you're out and about with your children, also at the city gate. The, the gate here is not, uh, they didn't typically have sort of picket fences with a little gate at the front of their property. This is the city gate or the village gate where businesses and, and meetings happen. It's, there's no public-private divide here. Make it a priority at all times from when you rise to when you lie down. Use your body to remember it. Moses talks about the hand and the head. Can you put God's word in places where you will see it each day just in what you do? Use your mind, talk about it, teach it, remember it. So what exactly are we to teach and pass on? Well, for Israel in verse 20, it says, when a, when a child notices these unusual laws, when your son asks you, then explain how God saved you out of slavery, gave you a new land and new laws. What about for us? We might word it a bit differently. When our children or, or perhaps our friends or colleagues, or whoever actually we come across who notices our strange love for God, maybe our refusal to love what they love, when they see us honour God with our bodies and with our hearts, when they see that we are not living for ourselves and they ask why, then can we say to them, not that God saved us out of Egypt, but can we explain to them that, that we were slaves to false gods, gods that couldn't save us or fulfil us or love us back. But the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. He sent his son out of great love for us. He died a great and terrible death for us. 
and with great power he rose again. He brought us out from there and brought us in to give us a fresh start in God's love. And he changed our hearts. And now we long to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, just as he has loved us. That's the culture that I want to be part of. The culture that loves God first because he first loved us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your love for us is rich and deep. We see that so profoundly on the cross. And you ask us to reciprocate. Thank you for pouring your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit you've given to us. Would you fill us individually and collectively with your love that we might truly love you? Guard us against hypocrisy and deceiving ourselves. Give us undivided hearts and minds. Grow in us a culture deeply shaped by your love. So that love for you shapes everything that we do. In the name of Jesus, the King of love.